Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast from the Recount and iHeartRadio, with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. Having been off the straight politics beat for the past two episodes of this podcast, even as there has been a metric ton of news coming out of the nation's capital, we found ourselves jonesing a bit for some high-grade, top-shelf, super-pure, ultra-premium USDA Prime Washington, D.C. conversation this week. And when it comes to getting the skinny on what's going on down in that toxic fever swamp, along with a healthy dollop of perspective on how it connects to the real lives of real people, and ideally getting it from someone who is both a serious power player and an actual genuine human being, someone who is not just a good egg, but a great egg. Well, truth is there are very few people in Washington, D.C. who meet all of those criteria. And one of them is our guest today, a woman I am delighted to call a friend, Michigan Democratic Congresswoman Debbie Dingell. The state of our union is fragile. We have a good, strong president, but there's too much hate and fear across this country, and none of us can take our democracy for granted. Since 2015, Deborah Ann Dingell has represented Michigan's 12th congressional district, which stretches from Detroit's western suburbs to Ann Arbor in the Wolverine State, a self-described car girl. Dingle was born Deborah Inslee, the granddaughter of one of the auto industry's legendary Fisher brothers, the owners of Fisher Body, which became a division of General Motors in 1926. Debbie worked for GM for more than 30 years, rising to become the executive director in charge of public affairs and the president of the GM Foundation before she was elected to Congress. Not surprisingly, Debbie Dingle was raised Republican, but that came to an end shortly after she married John Dingle Jr., in 1981, one of the most powerful figures in the history of the House of Representatives, he was also its longest-serving member ever, representing Michigan's 12th Congressional District for 59 years. And that came after his father, John Diggle Sr., had done the same for 22 years before him. When Big John, as John Dingle was known, retired in 2014, Debbie ran to succeed him in that seat and won. And in case you're wondering and don't have an abacus at hand, that means that Michigan 12 has been held by someone named Dingle for 87 years running. All of this history is pretty damn interesting, at least to me. But the reason that Debbie is here today and why I've always loved talking with her so much is that she is super smart, super savvy, and super clued in to the warp and weft of American politics in this hyper-partisan, hyper-polarized age. It was Debbie Dingle who was the first person to tell me quietly that she thought Hillary Clinton was going to have trouble against Bernie Sanders in the 2016 Democratic primary in Michigan, and she did. And it was Debbie Dingell, even as she campaigned for Hillary like crazy in the general election of that year, who was quietly worried all along about the appeal of Donald Trump in her state, which he won. And it was Debbie Dingell who first told me to pay attention to the stirrings of far-right militia movements in her state and the threat that they posed to Governor Gretchen Whitmer in the early months of COVID. Threats that turned into a crazy, crazy-ass plot to kidnap and assassinate the governor of Michigan. All of which is to say that time and time again, Debbie Dingell's political antennae have been finely tuned to the craziness that we have all been living through the past few years. Given everything that's going on in D.C. right now, Debbie and I had a lot of ground to cover on the podcast, the continuing fallout from the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th and the efforts to keep the place secure against ongoing extremist threats, the challenge of misinformation and disinformation on social media and the building sentiment for greater regulation of that industry, which the Energy and Commerce Committee, on which she sits, delved into last week in a hearing with the CEOs of Facebook, Google, and Twitter. Voting rights, gun safety, and of course, COVID, all very much in the news in recent days. How her friend Joe Biden is doing in his first 10 weeks in office. And finally, a topic that, listeners beware, gets pretty intense here. Topic related to her family history, Debbie's that is family history with domestic violence when she was growing up and how it informs her passionate advocacy for the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act and a whole lot of other things when it comes to the rights of women. A long and meaty list of topics to be sure, but Debbie Dingle delivered, which was not really a surprise given that she always has before. And God knows a woman with this much going on would never ever fail to bring her A-game to the big stage here on Hell and I Water. Are you concerned that the U.S. Capitol after January 6th uh, has become a fortress protecting 
uh, the capital from the people who are supposed to actually be the ones in charge here, not the people who are, uh, are sitting in the capital surrounding themselves by razor wire. I think it's disgraceful. It looks for the world to watch. Absolutely. It's a political maneuver that they're doing. Uh, it was a zero threat right from the start. It was zero threat. Look, uh, they went in. Uh, they shouldn't have done it. Uh, some of them went in and they're they're hugging and kissing the police and the guards. You know, they they had great relationships. Uh, a lot of the people were waved in and then they walked in and they walked out. And I'll tell you what, they're doing things to those. They're persecuting a lot of those people. And some of them should be some things should happen to them. But uh, when I look at Antifa in Washington, even when the, what they did to Washington or what they did to other locations and the destruction and frankly, the killing and the beating up of people and nothing happens to them whatsoever. Why aren't they going after Antifa? So I, um, First, I want to welcome my friend Debbie Dingle here to Helen High Water. It's good to see you. Hi. It's good to see you. As a general matter, I really don't believe in playing sound of the former guy um, in almost any circumstance now that he is the former guy. But this was so outrageous. And we know the man still has a lot of influence and power with tens of millions of Americans. So it's not like when he goes on Fox, you know, that's not like people don't hear him. And it's not like it doesn't have influence. And so I ask you just to start, you know, this is such an incredibly outrageous thing to say. But it's particularly outrageous in the context of the fact that we have all this video. It's not like this is he lies about a lot of things that, you know, there's voter fraud. Well, you can't see the voter fraud and you can't see the not voter fraud. You know, we know there was no voter fraud, but there's some things Trump can lie about where it seems like I understand why he's lying about it because he can get away with lying about it ostensibly. But this is a thing where it seems like it's over the line of. This going to backfire because there's just too many people who like have seen too much of this video and recognize that this was like not <laughs> it was not a zero risk event. I ask you, Congressman Dingle, who took shelter, who was in the Capitol that day on the House of the Floor, the House of the Floor, the House of Representatives, and what did not, I think, feel like there was zero threat. So, Debbie Dingle, I ask you, what do you think about Donald Trump? I was so outraged when I heard this video clip. A law enforcement officer died that day. He was not embraced. He was murdered. There were people that came to the Capitol that day, some from my own home state of Michigan, who have acknowledged that they came ready to try to kidnap. There were some prepared to murder people. We cannot accept that. We cannot normalize it. The only thing I agreed with what Donald Trump said in that whole statement is I don't like seeing fences and razor wire around the United States Capitol either. That is the symbol of democracy. It needs to be open to the people. But at the same time, the increase of threats, the increase of anger, the increase of violence that is occurring at members of Congress, but not just members of Congress. Look at how many senseless shootings there were just in the last week to acts of violence. And he, in some ways, fans the fire for them and condones it. What he said was so categorically not the truth. I just was stupefied when I listened to that statement. So there's a bunch of them, though, right, who are trying to kind of memory hole this thing. You know, it's Ron Johnson. It's other people, Republicans whose attitude is who seem to be trying to do a big kind of piece of gaslighting, historical gaslighting, trying to recast this event and make it seem as though it was less threatening than it was. It's obvious the answer to the question is, you know, what do you think of that is, of course, it's horrible and I object to it. But what do you think the prospects of for it working that this event, which everyone, you know, it's like 9-11. We watched 9-11 happen. There was basically unanimity in America, like, OK, this is a terrorist event. It's horrible. And it's not changed over time. No one's changed their view about what happened on 9-11. Do you think that as Republicans increasingly try to engage in this grand historical gaslighting that there's a chance it could work? I hope not. And I think all of us need to remember and remind each other of how fragile this government is. People came to the United States Capitol to keep an election from being certified and to harm people. You know, I just want to talk about law enforcement. Let's not even talk about the legislators right now. The law enforcement trying to protect us that day, and I want to thank them because I think many of us are alive because of what they did that day. They were not equipped. 
they did not have the backup or the equipment that they needed. And there is evidence. We need to get more of the facts. We need to get the facts that part of that was due to the fact that the Defense Department and the president wouldn't authorize the National Guard to be available that day. It's why we need a commission to study what happened. But there's an officer who has lost his sight. There are people that are going to be on permanent disability that were really physical harm was done to them that day, John. And I, I'm going to say this. I'm a woman from Michigan. And I want to thank the law enforcement, by the way. I had another incident on Thursday and real harm could have happened. And those officers were so steady and real and kept me safe. What do you mean? Another, what do you, what do you mean? Another, what's another incident? What happened? I'm not going to talk. About, you know why I don't talk about some of the things I've said to you. I've said to you, I don't talk about this often that I've had members of the militia in front of my house with assault weapons. I've had some other incidences, which I tried, you know, the more you talk about them, the more ideas it gives people. I have been in the President Trump hate tunnel. Right, I know. I know what it's like when that man goes after you with vitriolicness and viciousness and hate, and you cannot understand or imagine how horrific it is unless you have been in it. Right. Well, it, it goes to one of my questions you started to talk about. You know, this week they said the outside perimeter security fence on the Capitol is coming down. And you're talking about something that just happened with you. Do you feel safe right now at the Capitol? So I don't think about it. That is one of the things I know people get sort of mad at me because, you know, terrorists try to terrorize. And I want to thank the National Guard that were there for a couple of months. And by the way, we had more than a thousand Michigan National Guard that kept us safe for two months. And I made a point of going out, talking to them every day and thanking them. There's still a National Guard presence. I believe that we are stepping up and making changes that we should. I think security at the United States Capitol was too political. I think people were afraid of members and members thought they had special privileges and shouldn't have to worry. I think I've shared with you the story that the Capitol was closed to visitors prior to January 6th because of COVID. People were not supposed to be in there. And the day before January 6th, there was a group of people in there not wearing masks. You could identify who they were because of red hats that they were wearing. But I went and asked the officer because I was mad they weren't wearing masks. Right. And I said, I thought nobody was allowed in here. And he said, if they come in with a member, we can't say no. And I said, they're not wearing masks. And he goes, we're not allowed to tell them to wear masks. You can. So I, you know me, I walked <laughs> right over there and I told him they needed to wear masks. And then the officer thanked me and he said, we're the ones that are in danger every day. Of course. That was the day before January 6th. Now, a lot of people don't like it. I don't care. We walk through, just to go on the floor, we're going through magnetometers. I think they're stepping up a number of procedures. Speaker announced a new sergeant at arms who was head of the National Guard for the House. The Senate's appointed a new one. We need to make improvements that I think they're focused on it. I think there are some members, John, that especially the ones that were up in the gallery. I was on the floor. I didn't know what was happening outside, but I never felt unsafe that day because I counted on the law enforcement to keep us safe. I knew how bad it was after. There were people, my colleagues, who thought they were going to die that day. Yes. They genuinely believed they were going to die. And they are suffering from post-traumatic stress. They will tell you that. They're going to counselors together. They're scared. So I think we have to secure the capital. We have to make changes in how we all operate. And we need to find a way to keep it open to the people at the same time. So, I mean, you mentioned the the new sergeant at arms, and I don't know as much about the woman who's been named as the new Senate sergeant of arms as uh, Lieutenant General Karen Gibbs. They have an all-female security. It's kind of neat. It's totally cool, right? And she's a very impressive woman, Lieutenant General Gibbs is. Yes, she is. An intelligence person. Very impressive. Um, there's still a lot of discussion about the threat that exists when Joe Biden decides, whenever that date gets set, when he comes up to give a, an address to the joint session in the investigations of the January 6th events, there's now you know a lot of concern about extremist groups that are targeting that particular event 
And again, I ask you, as you've gotten your briefings on where things stand, on the changes that are being made, on what happened on January 6th, what the failures were, et cetera, do you feel like just that you all have a handle on this, even if things are not yet perfect, that you feel like we have a grip on what went wrong, what we need to do going forward, and that by the time we get to Joe Biden coming up there, we're going to be in a position where you're going to feel as secure as you have customarily felt in all of your years in Congress watching presidents come up there, at least on an annual basis, to give a big speech, whether it's State of the Union or you know, an inaugural or whatever? So I'm going to answer that in several different ways. We don't have the answers that we need to have for January 6th. I want to be really clear on that. I'm somebody that thinks we need a commission. I think it should be a balanced commission, and we need answers to a lot more questions. What were the tools that were used? How much of it was organized? How much of it was spontaneous? Were there people that were in there early? You know, there are a number of very concerning reports about some of the people that were participating, that they were former or active military. And I don't even want to repeat some of the things that are concerning because we don't have answers to the questions and we need those answers. I think that everybody is very, very alert for the State of the Union. The Secret Service, like they did for the inaugural, will have the lead. They are used to keeping very complicated events like this safe. Yep. Nothing's 100% safe. I think we all have to be vigilant. I worry more, quite frankly, about what they may try to do in other places of the country right. around the same time and the disruption and the fear. So that brings me to my next question, my next line of inquiry, so to speak. And we're going to talk about you and your background a little bit more down the line in this podcast. But you know, Michigan is... In a lot of ways, ground zero for uh, right wing extremism, and has been for a long time. We have talked about the fact that you know the first Oklahoma bombing. The first thing that I covered in this realm was I was on a plane to Oklahoma City a couple hours after that bomb went off, and then spent a couple months really focusing on Tim McVeigh and and learning about the Michigan militia. First time I ever heard that phrase, despite the fact that my mother grew up on the Upper Peninsula and I'd been coming to Michigan my whole life, I'd never heard about a Michigan militia. That's 1995. So we're, you know, we're a long way from that. And Michigan is still maybe more now the center of this right wing armed, clenched fist and camouflage crowd that endangers us as we go forward. But just right now in your state, has any of this subsided at all now that Trump is gone? Or does it feel like in Michigan, in the hotbed of that activity, that people are more inflamed? Like, what's the status of <laughs> extremism in your home state right now, because so much emanates out of that state that has national implications. So I would say to you that there are many groups that are independently organized that I think are as strong or stronger than they've been. But you are correct. They've always been there. I've known about them for a long time for a variety of reasons. I mean, it's complicated because John was on the NRA board, my former husband who died last year or two years ago, was on the board of the NRA and groups until he resigned after the gun bill in the 90s. And if you lived and represented some of the areas that I did, you knew that these groups were there and they had strong feelings. And quite frankly, the first time I became aware of the real potential angry side of them was after John supported the president's gun bill. And he had to have police protection then for six months because people were so angry at him. Worth saying just for context, right? John Dingle, your husband, again, we'll talk about this more, but your late husband, one of the most powerful people in the last century in Congress, a chairman of the committee you now sit on, one of the committees you sit on, the Energy and Commerce Committee, had been chairman for years and years and years and had been very staunch pro-gun rights. And in the mid-90s, the history you're talking about here- Was until the day he died, actually. And then stepped off the board of the NRA- and supported the assault weapons ban in the mid-90s, 1994, then that basically, even though he was, as you say, a, still a supporter of gun rights to the day he died, he became public enemy number one for the NRA when he dropped off their board and basically said, this is no longer about gun rights, this is about weapons of war. And, you know, as you're saying now, became a credible target of a bunch of people he had been aligned with for a very long time. That is correct. And so that was the first time that I became aware of it. And there would be periodic times, quite frankly, when the Affordable Care Act was first being considered. And you remember some of the horrific town halls that happened around the country. He was the first one to have one of the horrific town halls. And there were people with assault weapons 
so I have experienced it firsthand yeah. in different ways. And quite frankly, many of the groups are in my district. Not many of the groups, some of the groups. Some, there used yeah. to be more, but some of the areas that have ordered me. And I think just so people understand, it's not just at public officials, like the story of they're threatening to kidnap the governor or some of the other attacks on people like me, but Many of the groups, religious organizations in particular, were very worried around Election Day that the militia groups would come into Ann Arbor and target people of religious affiliation. I mean, for the Jewish faith, the Muslim faith, but actually Christians were very, they really, really were scared, very frightened. And I called the mayor of Ann Arbor and I called the sheriff and I called the mayors, the police chiefs of all the surrounding areas. And we literally had a number of meetings with people, people expressing their fright. I mean, I'm talking real fright yeah. and anger. Yeah. And then all of the police chiefs and the law enforcement and the mayors, I had a meeting where law enforcement wanted to make sure that if something happened, that the mayors were going to have their back and put out an expression of, we're going to work together to keep the community safe. But it interferes with communities' lives, too. Yeah. So this week on the House Energy and Commerce Committee, where you sit, you guys brought in the CEOs of three of the most powerful companies in the world, the CEO of Google, the CEO of Facebook, and the CEO of Twitter. This has become a little bit of a ritual, those guys going up to Capitol Hill. But this was a hearing designed to address specifically the questions of misinformation and disinformation on those platforms. And the connection of that misinformation and disinformation to the rising threat of extremists and hate groups, mostly on the right, that we've seen. And I want to play a little sound. You had a pretty starchy <laughs> back and forth with Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook. So let's listen to that and we'll talk about it on the other side. In a recent investigative report, a former Facebook AI researcher said he and his team conducted study after study confirming the same basic idea. Models that maximize engagement increase polarization. And you yourself have said that the more likely content is to violate Facebook community standards, the more engagement it generally receives. Engagement is the key to Facebook's growth and success, and the stock market's rewarded you for it, even as you've been criticized for promoting extremism and racist content, including in a 2020 Facebook civil rights audit. The two seemed to go hand in hand, as Facebook was also the most cited social media site in charging documents that the Justice Department filed against the Capitol Hill insurrections. Mr. Zuckerberg, do you still maintain that the more likely user content is to violate Facebook community standards, the more engagement it will receive, yes or no? Congresswoman, thanks for, for raising this, because I think that there's been a bunch of, of um, inaccurate things about this shared today. Okay, there there seems to be a belief. Yes no? Sorry, sorry, this is a, a, a nuanced topic. So if, if you if, if you're OK with it, I'd like to explain I what, keep what it is short, but I'll give it a second since I'm sure. One of the so that's a top victim of this hate. Um, People don't want to see misinformation or divisive content on our services. People don't want to see clickbait and things like that. While it may be true that people might be more likely to click on it in the short term, it's not good for our business or our product or our community for this content to be there. It's not what people want. And we run the company for the long term um, with, with a view um, towards 10 or 20 years from now. And I, I think that um, we're highly aligned with our community in um, in, in trying to uh, not show people the content that's not going to be meaningful to them. I will say that that was a non-responsive answer to the question and also a giant heaping, steaming pile of bullshit. I agree with that word. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm not an expert on these matters, either misinformation, disinformation. I know a fair amount about heaping piles of bullshit when I see it, though. That was my reaction. What was yours? Well, first of all, all three of them came prepared to filibuster. They are, as you say, have been testifying a lot. and They're getting the art of not answering a question down to a science. But the fact of the matter is, is that he does do better. He makes more money with the more clicks that he gets. And the more controversial, the more hateful, the kind of rhetoric that is contributing to this kind of violence that we are talking about in this country his social media platform does better. So while they say they're banning these ads, 
They're not. They've got algorithms that actually let you target people for this hate. I am someone that believes we are going to have to do something about it because these sites have become tools of division, hatred, and attacks on our democracy. And I think it's a very delicate line, John. Freedom of speech versus threats to our country. And how do you define that difference? Right. And so you pointed out that they took a step in October where they sensibly took down you know, a bunch of political content. And yet a few months later, we had January 6th. And we know that Facebook was in the middle of January 6th. Unfortunately, I do know a little bit about this, right? You know, Trump has introduced the notion of the Section 230 thing in the Communications Decency Act. And basically, the way I try to explain this to people is that the platform companies have always maintained that they are newsstands. You can't sue a newsstand because something in the New York Times or in Time Magazine or whatever, the newsstand is just a purveyor of all the stuff. We're not publishers. You know, the New York Times is a publisher, Time Magazine's a publisher, uh, BuzzFeed's a publisher. We are essentially a digital newsstand. That's always been the posture that Communications Decency Act passed in the mid-1990s. And now there's a lot of people who go, well, <laughs> maybe once upon a time you were a newsstand, but you're not a newsstand now because of these complex algorithms that knit people together and push content at people on the basis of what as you say, will drive the most engagement, drive the most clicks. And as it turns out, that is often conspiracy theories, lies, and stuff that's less bad than conspiracy theories and lies, but is just stuff that reinforces people's own pre-existing biases and judgments and et cetera. It just creates a very toxic environment. It feels to me like there's now, for slightly different reasons, a bunch of kind of emerging consensus among Republicans and Democrats that this has to change. I agree. That 230 has to change. And Republicans have a different point of view for why, but that It feels to me like now this is a thing where Republicans, Democrats really do think something has to happen to change the regulatory structure for these companies and that we're going to see some action. The question is what? Tell me if you think I'm right about that assessment. No, I think you're absolutely right. And then what do you think it's going to look like? I think if you watched the hearing on Thursday, there were still a couple of my colleagues that were fairly political in nature that (laughs) I might compare them to Trump's kind of diatribes. I mean, I agreed with some of the points that Republicans were bringing up quite strongly, actually. And as many of my colleagues have observed during that day and subsequent to that, they managed to do something no one has been able to do, which is to bring Republicans and Democrats together. I'm working on privacy aspects. The other thing that drives me nuts is that we have no idea of the amount of knowledge that we are giving away about ourselves every single day. Sure, It's way too late to get the genie back in the bottle, but we really need to know how the algorithms are targeting us because of all the data we're giving them that they know what our biases are, our idiosyncrasies are, and they know how to get to us. So I think we're going to be looking at transparency, the regulators have access to all our algorithms. I don't know why I can't say that word today. I did find on Thursday. But I think there's going to be a number of major pieces, and then we'll see where we all come to agreement on it. But social media has become, look, it was started to bring us together, Mm. and now it's dividing us. And it was what people don't understand is that this social media, Facebook in particular, was used to organize January 6th. Yes. People in, I mean, there's another guy from Michigan in the last 24, 48 hours that was bragging on Facebook about going, doing harm, trying to destroy, take over, getting rid of people. That's not okay. And I'll tell you how I think you know that change is coming is that when you pressed Zuckerberg on the question of transparency around the algorithms, like should we not be able to see the secret sauce here of how it is that you guys are using all this information you've accumulated to decide what things show up in whose feed, et cetera. He did not really fight you on that. No, he didn't. He sort of was like, you know, he didn't grant everything about the characterization of the platform that you put forward. And to me, that's just a sign that they know regulation is coming. They're not fighting over whether there should be regulation. There's not going to be a big battle about what it looks like, but it's coming and they know that. But I still think they'll fight it. Well, yeah. I want to be really clear here. I don't trust any of them. Right. (laughs) You know, I've been in these kinds of fights before and they're not going to want to be regulated. And so they're hurrying up and gearing up and 
will do whatever they can to stop this legislation from being enacted ultimately. So I think the House will get something through. And, you know, we have this other major fight. How do you get the Senate to actually pass legislation? So I don't want to give them one ounce of credit. Yeah. Because I think they know exactly what's happening on the social media platforms and that it is profitable for them. Yeah. And I don't think that they have a moral conscience about some of the damage that is done through communications. Right. And to be clear, I, I did not remotely mean to suggest I was giving them credit. I just, yeah, you know, no, no, no. you just sort of start I to just, watch when they, when they start to say, when they start to give ground on things, it's not because they want to give ground. They're just trying to move the shift to where the fight's going to be, which is going to be, how do we get toothless regulations? That's what they're going to be trying to get. Yeah, exactly. And I don't put the three of them in the same boat. I think each of them is a different business model. Yes. And I think each of them has a different approach and probably I'm not going to get in trouble here by saying who I think might, but I think there's some that (laughs) might be more open to understanding what the power of their platform is and try to keep from doing harm. And I think there are others that don't care if they do harm. I mean, I'll say it. I think we've seen, you know, you can criticize Twitter for not doing enough and you can criticize them for not for not going far enough and et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg had a different point of view about this. And you could see, you know, Jack Dorsey was way out in front of Facebook and banning political advertising and doing a bunch of things like a year earlier. So, I mean, I, I don't think it's a secret as to the difference in their outlooks. Now, again, that's not to say that Jack Dorsey and, and Twitter are model citizens here, but they have taken a different approach to this than than Facebook has. This is, I think, an excellent place for us to take a break, Debbie. Let's pause here and listen to some advertisements so that we can keep the lights on here at Hell and High Water, and then we will come back with Congresswoman Debbie Dingell for part two of this episode of Hell and High Water, where we will dive into some Dingle history. 87,000 women, according to the United Nations, are killed every year. 50,000 of them are killed by an intimate partner or a spouse. That means 137 women die every day by a family member. Another statistic I will give you is that one out of 15 children witness domestic violence. And 90% of them experience it in some way. I am one of those children. I grew up at a time that no one recognized or admitted that a man could do it. Every time I have to have this discussion, I I actually get more depressed. It brings back memories that sit in my heart and soul. And last night I talked to my brother and my sister, because every time I talk about this, it's not just my story, it's the story of my siblings. And we don't forget about hiding in closets or a father taking locks off doors, of grabbing a gun from my father so he wouldn't kill my mother and being convinced that we would die. We are back with Debbie Dingle on Hell and High Water. And Debbie, that was you talking about uh, in a public speech recently, the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act and giving a little glimpse into a very sad and upsetting part of your personal history. You are famously a self-described car girl. You, uh, Before you married John Dingle, you were Deborah Inslee. You're a granddaughter of one of the Fisher brothers, the famous Fisher brothers, owner of Fisher Body, which was one of the early, early automotive coach builders in Detroit right after the turn of the century and became a division of General Motors and was that for many years back in the days when Detroit was Motor City. And you grew up, you have said, in a very Republican family and also, as you mentioned and talked about in that clip, a troubled family due to your father's, I guess we'll say, propensity for domestic violence. I believe it's the case that he was also a prescription drug addict. Um, So heavy stuff. But can you talk a little bit about growing up in that environment and how it shaped you and your life and your career and how you approach, you know, the world and being one of the most important female leaders in the Congress and in the Democratic Party? So first of all, you know, when I was young, nobody talked about any of these issues. You know, none of us knew what opioid drug addiction was. 
I remember the the one night that was a particularly the night that I really was convinced we were all going to die when I took the gun or tried to get the gun from my father and my mother ran out of the house and then he took the doorknobs off all of the doors so none of us could escape. I tried to call the police and they wouldn't answer. They wouldn't come. I mean, in those days, it just wasn't domestic violence certainly wasn't recognized in the kind of household that I came from. And there was nobody to get help from. And you just, you also didn't talk about what was going on inside the family. I didn't understand what addiction was. I don't think anybody really understood in the sixties and seventies, what addiction was, uh, how it impacted people what it just did to people's lives. So you accepted it as normal. You didn't talk about it with anybody. It made me protective of my brothers and sisters. I mean, my sister and I will talk about it from time to time because we would never want anybody else to have to go through what we went through. I had a baby sister who I loved, Mary Grace, who I think was the most traumatized by all of this. She started first grade, was supposed to start first grade the night after that horrific night. And I had to beg my father to let me leave the house to put a doorknob back on so that I could walk her to school. I was, you know, probably in seventh grade, sixth grade or seventh grade. And I don't, she never wanted to go to school. She too became a drug addict and she ultimately died. And it's just made me much more sensitive to life, to what happens to people, to how it can destroy people's lives and to try to listen to other people and have compassion. She, uh, your sister, youngest of, of the, in the baby family, sister. right? Yeah. Baby sister, right. And she was yeah. also a prescription drug addict. Yeah. Who, and who, she, was oh, probably, who, she used everything. She was a very troubled. I mean, I, there was nothing that I did not experience, but by the way, I think it has helped me understand people's challenges. I had her in and out of drug treatment centers. She would disappear. I would call morgues looking for her. The police became used to it. She married someone in one of the programs that tried to blackmail us. You know, the last time before she died, she agreed to go to Hazleton. Some things happened. I just remember the desperation. They needed to send her to something connected to uh, Mayo and she didn't stay and she unfortunately died within a couple of months and you just I, I know the desperation I know the loving somebody that you can't help and I I know what pills do to people right and she overdosed right yep or did it deliberately the doctor says at the level she was it may have been I mean one of the things that I've I've found in the last um, several presidential cycles is that you go around with candidates and there's places in the presidential nominating contests that are places like New Hampshire where there's a large problem with opioid addictions. Obviously, it's a problem everywhere in the country, but some places where it's particularly bad and New Hampshire is one of them. And you see candidates addressing this question, the opioid problem in America. And it's often a thing where there are, you know, everyone in America at this point knows someone who's got some kind of a problem, have had some kind of a problem or has some kind of a problem with opioids. And so when you see politicians address it in the room, it often is a moment where audiences really lean forward and listen because their families are affected by it or afflicted by it in some way. And yet the press generally, my colleagues, my friends in the press often kind of roll their eyes and shrug and, and don't really pay attention to it. It doesn't really get covered, even though it's like a pervasive fact of life in America, right? And I don't know if that's because they become jaded about it or if it's because they think there's nothing the federal government can do about it or whatever. But I remember Chris Christie having a kind of an incredible moment in 2012 with a voter telling story about this in New Hampshire. And I've seen it time and time again. So I guess I ask you whether, you know, this has been a slow rolling crisis for a long time now. Do you think we're making any progress on the front of dealing with this massive, massive, pervasive problem with opioids all over the country? So... COVID has exasperated opioids. Many people are scared, isolated, using drugs again. I think we were making progress, you know, and it becomes very complicated. So again, 
living with John Dingo, I saw both sides of life. He watched what I went through in my own family, watched my desperation of my sister and was very afraid of pain pills. But he had cancer, which people did not know, prostate cancer that had gone into the bone and was in a great deal of pain and wouldn't take pain pills. And when you get older, the kind of pain pills that you can take becomes very complicated because it impacts the kidney. And so opioids were the only thing he could take. And it took me forever to convince him that he needed to get some relief for pain. But then when you fill prescriptions, and I think we've made progress on doctors prescribing them and watching people so that they don't get too many. But it has also become very difficult for people with real pain. And the oncologists have talked to me about people with real pain having access to medicine too. I think that we've got, I'm going to go larger than opioid drug addiction. We have mental health issues in this country. We have got to take away the stigma connected to it. There are people that are really suffering that need help. I think my father suffered from anxiety, depression. Do I know if it was something worse? I don't know, but he self-medicated. And I know my sister was at, at least depressed, had anxiety, and I don't know what she had. She self-medicated. I think a lot of people self-medicate, and that's part of the problem. And if we invested in mental health resources and helping people, we would be getting at the roots of many of these problems that we're not getting at right now. I obviously agree with that. And one of the most pressing of those problems, Debbie, that you rightly say that we're definitely not dealing with and that we haven't been dealing with for a long time, even as the problem gets worse and worse and more and more horrifying, is gun violence, which has been in the news in the past couple of weeks due to those shootings first down in Atlanta and then in Boulder. Those incidents, terrible incidents, I mean, just the worst. We're coming out of the pandemic and we are back to mass shootings. And they have inevitably kind of renewed a discussion about this Congress and a renewed push for gun safety measures. The usual things are getting mentioned from background checks to a revival of the assault weapons ban. And last week, Joe Biden came out very strongly, said the time has come. We can't wait any longer, et cetera, et cetera. As he and others have said in the past, in the wake of these mass shootings that are all too common in America, and then, you know, what happens? Nothing. Over and over again, mass shooting, calls for action, nothing happens. So, Debbie, I, I, you know, it's a long preamble here, but I would love it if you would talk a little bit about these events in Georgia and Colorado, and more importantly, whether you see in this new Congress where you work given the levels of polarization and intransigence from Republicans that we're already witnessing and everything that we're seeing unfold right now, do you think this new Congress is an environment where there is any, any realistic prospect of getting anything done on this front to deal with the scourge and the plague of gun violence in America? So, John, I want to make a couple of points before I even answer that question, because I mean, obviously the NRA doesn't love me and they've been after me again in the last couple of weeks because of the Violence Against Women's Act, where I have an amendment in that that says that a convicted felon of domestic violence against a partner shouldn't have access to a gun. I was married to a man that was a responsible gun owner. He slept with a handgun under his pillow to the day he died. True story. I lived with a man growing up that shouldn't have had access to guns, who had mental health issues, that when he became emotional or something happened or he snapped those guns in his hands were dangerous. And there were moments when I was sure that I would die and other family members of mine would die. We have to figure out a way that we are going to have this discussion, that we are not threatening the Second Amendment or keeping guns out of the hands of responsible people. But there are people that should not have access to guns. And the mental health community gets upset when you associate it with, and I don't, but the fact of the matter is there are people with mental health issues that use guns in not good ways, from killing themselves to killing family members to these mass shootings we have seen. And we got to do something. How many more mass shootings are we going to see? And 
again, House can pass it. I think we will pass it. But the Senate is where everything seems to go to die. And I'm a traditionalist. I respect the rituals of the United States Congress. But if everything goes to the United States Senate today, now John Dingell wrote in his book that we should eliminate the Senate. And I might even think about that, but we'll never get it done. I think you mean eliminate the filibuster, not eliminate the Senate. No, no. Read his book. He would eliminate the Senate. True story. I'll send you the book. With man, the book. A, man of, a man of the house to the day he died, John Nichol. <laughs> a man of the house to the day he died. But I think we do have to have a serious conversation about the filibuster because I think the votes are probably there to do more. I mean, there are some men that were like my husband in the Senate that are strong, but I think there's some Republicans that would also. So I, I think this is a very individual decision, but I'll tell you, Right before he died, there were a couple incidences. I had never really spoken publicly about what had happened to me until we did the sit-on on the House floor. And John Lewis, God rest his soul, who was a close friend of John to mine, encouraged me to speak about guns. And that was really the first time I spoke about it. And I, John was in Michigan. And when I went home, I didn't know what he was going to say. And he said he was proud of me. And then something else happened. And I introduced a bill to actually reverse the Dingle bill. And Fred Upton teased me, did he change the locks on the house? And John looked at me and said, times have changed. It's time for some things to change. And I I think we need to look at what's happening and how some of these weapons are being used and what do we do to keep communities safe? One of many things that made your late husband, Big John, such a force when he was in the Congress, his willingness to change and adapt to changing circumstances. And that, of course, is something that we see all too little of these days in many quarters, and in particular on one side of the aisle in Congress today. Speaking of which, you know, changing circumstances, let's talk a little about the future and the many, many items that the House and Senate are going to be dealing with in the weeks and months ahead. We have this giant, gargantuan, three or four trillion with a T trillion dollar infrastructure package that the administration is going to put forward later this year. We have HR one to deal with the voting rights challenges that are arising in states across the country. And we have a new Medicare for all bill that you, Debbie, you yourself co-authored. And we should talk about filibuster reform. A lot of stuff to talk about. Where would you like to start? So I think the infrastructure bill that we're going to introduce is going to be very critical. I don't think decisions have been made to exactly how it's going to be handled. There are some that say you should do everything that you can get bipartisan agreement on in one bill and do the other controversial bills and reconciliation. I don't happen to agree with that, but I do believe in bipartisanship. I'm working very hard with my colleagues across the aisle. I know everybody, and I'm going to quote my governor, we need to fix the damn roads. We need bridges, but it's much broader than that. We need to build an electric vehicle infrastructure. We need to expand broadband to not only urban areas, but to rural areas. You're going to see a social, a healthcare side of this, where we've got to fix the healthcare infrastructure in this country. I'm very focused on long-term care and all of this. COVID has shined a light on a lot of broken things in this country. I'm really proud. We haven't talked about this, but in the COVID bill we passed, we passed more money than's been there for home and community-based care. And coming out of COVID, you know, I mean, people don't realize what happens and how we treat our seniors or the disabled. And you have to go into poverty practically. If you get sick for more than 90 days, you don't have money to take care of yourself. Medicare doesn't cover you. After 90 days, Medicaid will pay for institutional, but we don't support home care and we don't pay home care workers, caregivers enough money. They're working two jobs and living at the poverty line. So lots of these kinds of issues need to be discussed and are going to be front and center, too. There's a lot of frustration on the part of a lot of people, in particular, a lot of people in your chamber about not being able to move anything. Even Joe Biden, who has been generally not inclined to mess around with the filibuster, has really leaning pretty hard into the notion that he's going to end up supporting some kind of filibuster reform, if not elimination. You know, you are not in the United States Senate, but I know you talk to a lot of people over there. Do you think that it's to the point now where it's become even people who are reluctant to make those kind of changes are finally about to give way? And what do you think will happen there when you hear Mitch McConnell talk about nuclear winter? 
do you worry that there's some prospects that making that kind of change, things could actually be worse even than they are now, hard as that is to imagine? Look, if you looked at how the United States House of Representatives is acting and that our new colleague, Congresswoman Green from Georgia, calls for a motion to adjourn every day the Congress comes in, and then suspension bills, which we used to be able to pass with two-thirds agreement, and there are still two-thirds that support it, calling for roll call votes. So, And every roll call vote takes an hour. You talk about a chamber that was grumpy. When we left the House last week, I feared for how people felt about each other and the kind of work. And that nuclear winner is already starting to, that that sense of disruption is more a reality in the House than people realize. So I believe Mitch McConnell can do that. Now, I know her Republican colleagues are angry at her. How long are Republicans going to put up with that in the Senate? And, you know, I'm kind of following Joe Biden's lead here. I'm a more of a traditionalist than some people might like, but I, bills can't just go sit there. We have got real problems in this country that have to be dealt with. And Ron Johnson, who is denying the truth and the reality of life the way the President Trump is, is very disturbing to me. And they can't be allowed to stop real meaningful legislation that people in this country who are hurting and need from happening. But all of us, Republican or Democrat, have got a responsibility to look at what is happening to these institutions and understand that the future of our democracy is at risk right now. And we are attacking the fundamental pillars of it. And we've all got responsibilities. Getting it elected to represent the people you put you there means you've got to defend this democracy, not destroy it. Yes. Let us make a point of not destroying our democracy. I am 100% with you on that, Debbie Dingle. And also, maybe less urgent, but more timely, let's take a break and catch our breath while the business side of Helen Highwater Incorporated goes out and sells some soap flakes. And when we get back, we will discuss Debbie Dingle's close friendship with President Joe Biden and the huge challenges that the new president is facing. So we'll take that break and then we'll come back for act three of Helen High Water with Michigan Congresswoman Debbie Dingell. I've known Joe Biden for almost 40 years since I married John Dingell. I watched Joe and John work together for almost 40 years. Most people don't know this story, but the last day that John served, I took him to the doctor, and they took him right to the hospital. And the doctor that day said to me, I think he's finished his life's work, and you need to be prepared that he may die this weekend. I didn't tell anybody, but somehow Joe Biden heard it through the grapevine. And the very first people, and the only people that came to intensive care were Joe and Jill. And Joe went and talked to John and said, buddy, it's not your time. You still have stuff to do. And I'll never forget that he did that. And I think I had John for another four years, and the country had John in his Twitter for another four years because Joe cared and knew and understood. And that compassionate understanding, that empathy, I think is the prescription America needs right now. Welcome back to Helen High Water. Debbie, that was you answering a question from me just two days after the 2020 election when the outcome was starting to become clear, but we were still a few days from the result being called. And I had come up to Michigan while shooting the season finale for my Showtime series, The Circus. It was an emotional time and a fraught time in America when we didn't know necessarily who was going to win that election. And I was asking you about Joe Biden and why you thought he was the person that the country needed now, especially in light of the huge divisions in the country. The fact that Donald Trump had won more votes, more votes in 2020 than he did in 2016 and all that stuff. And that was your quite moving and personal and reflective answer. We are now a couple months into the Biden era and the president last week did his first news conference with reporters after 60-some days in office. So let's just start with that. How do you think the president did? You know what? Well, give him a break. I'm so t- I mean, it's not like he hasn't been available to people. He hasn't been talking off the cuff. It, 
I got to say, I, I do get tired of some of the constant nitpicking. You, you, did you hear me? Did you hear me nitpick? I just no, said, you did. I just said, I just like, said it had been, I, I just said it had been 60 some days. No, How do you do? That's I know, it. I know. But some of your other friends have done it. I didn't get to watch it live because I was doing this hearing as you and I were right. just talking about. So I've seen clips of it, but I think he did great. I mean, everybody came into that. Will he make a mistake? Will he say something he shouldn't have? He gave a lot of forthright answers. You know what I'm going to say? He walked into a total disaster. He walked into a mess. He walked into a country that was upside down. And even when we knew it was upside down, nobody thought we'd have an insurrection on the 6th or that we try to impeach a president again. And we knew we needed to pull this country together, but not quite as seriously, or that he would have the mess that he had on the vaccinations and getting more of the vaccine produced. He initially set a goal of 100 million arms having vaccines in them. He got that done. He set a new goal. He talked honestly about a lot of things. We got some tough problems. People don't realize how difficult a lot of these issues are that we've got to deal with. And I think he was straightforward. I think the problem that the border's got to get addressed. He's put the vice president in charge and we're all worried about it. And you can't sugarcoat it. And by the way, it was there before he became president, but it's there now and he's got to deal with it. Afghanistan's another real problem. We all wish these problems were simple, but the world we live in isn't simple. No. So I think he's doing as good a job as a lot of other people could be. And, And look at the bill that he got through the Congress. To me, the most stunning thing of the press conference of the whole thing. Now, I sent a question about COVID from the assembled reporters. I'm not in the business of nitpicking my colleagues about what they ask or what they don't ask. There are some questions they could ask that I wouldn't ask. There are some that I would lean more into, but I just more read it as kind of a media anthropologist. And I look at it and think part of it is because he's spoken a lot about this, that people know what he's going to say, and they don't really think they can make news with him talking about COVID. But it is a reality. It is a striking, telling reality that the press sort of thought, you know, we've heard a lot from Joe Biden on this. We see what his plan is. He's making progress and there's nothing really to it. Now, again, I could come up with 20 good questions about COVID to ask. I mean, are you feeling good right now about where we are in that arc in handling COVID? That is the passage of the American Recovery Act, the pace of vaccination set against still serious concerns about getting kids back to school and some of the resistance of the teachers unions, the new variants that are coming out in Michigan and elsewhere. How do you feel about where we are in tackling what has been the dominant challenge of all of our lives for the past year? I'm always very blunt, which doesn't always win me accolades. That's why, but why I love you so much, why you're here. People have COVID fatigue. In Michigan, we're in a surge. We are the number one state in the country for increases in COVID, uh, which is probably for a number of reasons. One, COVID fatigue. People don't want to wear masks. They don't want to keep their distance. They want to go to restaurants and they're tired of COVID. Well, I'm tired of COVID too, but I still double mask when I'm out and I was scared to death to get vaccinated. I did because I had 10 doctors all beating me up and I'm here. I survived it. And though I was very scared of it, but two, we probably have more cases of the B117 than most states, if not all states. And we know that spreads uh, more quickly and it is more lethal than others. The vaccine is getting out. The president without question has increased the production, but I'm still fighting to get it into communities that have been disparately impacted by COVID, African-Americans, communities of color. It's still hard getting that vaccine to them where it needs to get. I call myself, but I can't do it after what Ron Weiser did. I call myself the vaccination witch in Michigan and then substitute the W for the B, but now I got to stop saying it. Rashida says, stop saying that. You're the strongest advocate. (laughs) But I mean, I really am out there fighting every day to get the vaccines and And once we get the vaccines to people that want the shots, we're also going to have to worry about everybody that's afraid of it. And we are not going to go back to life as we want it to be for several more months. And that's a reality. And people need to accept it. Yeah. And, you know, among the things that you guys touched on in that hearing, I don't want to go backwards here in our conversation, but with the tech guys on Thursday was among the other problems of all the misinformation and disinformation on those platforms is not just the stuff that drives violent extremism and and so on, but it's just all the disinformation and misinformation about vaccines. Fear mongering. 
about vaccines specifically. They are fear-mongering about the vaccines. And it's very, I mean, and when you get a name like Kennedy, who is out there anti-vaccination, I want to tell you all, I actually am someone that had a ne- negative consequence. I got Gansbury from a swine flu shot many years ago. I was partially paralyzed. That is fear. That's real life fear. But I'm not stupid. And I know that vaccines and immunizations save lives. And we're not going to get out of COVID until we all get vaccinated. So was I scared? I had reason to be scared, but I got it. I didn't get paralyzed. I'm walking around and it's given me a little more freedom, but I got to still be careful like everybody else. Did you say you got paralyzed from a swine flu vaccination? Correct. But a swine flu shot caused Gain-Barre in some people. And I was one of the people that had the- Wow. And and are you all recovered from that? Is everything- Yeah, it was like 30 some years ago. Okay. I mean, but it's like, I hate shots, but I'm yeah. not stupid. They save lives. They keep your kids from getting these diseases and having devastating consequences. People who don't get vaccinated for the measles, do they know what measles do when young children get it? Yeah. Do they know that mumps leave people sterile? It's not right. And it's irresponsible people to be spreading this. And as I said, given that and all the other stuff we are talking about here, it's still hard for me to believe that Joe Biden didn't get any questions about the pandemic. But one thing that I expected him to get questions about and that he did get questions about was voting rights. And in particular, the Republican efforts around the country to curtail them, notably in Georgia, where Governor Kemp signed an absolutely terrible bill into law last week. And let's listen to what Joe Biden had to say when he was asked about this topic. What I'm worried about is how un-American this whole initiative is. It's sick. It's sick. Deciding in some states that you cannot bring water to people standing in line waiting to vote. Deciding that you're going to end voting at five o'clock when working people are just getting off work. Deciding that there will be no absentee ballots under the most rigid circumstances. The Republican voters I know find this despicable. Republican voters. The folks out in the outside this White House. I'm not talking about the, the elected officials. I'm talking about voters, voters. And so I'm convinced that we'll be able to stop this because it is the most pernicious thing. This makes Jim Crow look like Jim Eagle. I mean, this is gigantic what they're trying to do, and it cannot be sustained. So that's Joe Biden on voting rights, just flaying Republicans for for we saw the, the passage of this law in Georgia. We know that's happening state after state around the country where Republicans are trying to suppress votes and particularly suppress African-American votes. H.R. 1 is a big, important bill. Tell me about what you think the stakes are for this particular fight over voting rights, voting access, voter suppression and the necessity of this bill or some version of this bill getting passed into law for the future of American democracy and enfranchisement and equal voting rights. Did anybody see the video of the black state legislator in Atlanta being arrested, just merely trying to attend a governor's bill signing? That an African-American state legislator elected by the people of her district could be pulled away by that many state troopers and put in jail is so unacceptable that you can are being denied giving someone water when they may be in a three or four hour line. There is nobody that can deny what people are trying to do. They are trying to suppress people from voting. In America, every person's got a right to vote, a responsibility to vote, And we need to encourage the maximum participation. So, yes, I am worried. And I, again, think that we just have to look at what's happening in my own state, too. We have to look at what people are trying to do and how they are trying to keep people from voting. And all of us need to push back. And I will say that one of the things that these kinds of efforts uh, in places like Georgia, I think, are going to do is spur that very pushback, I think they are quite likely to backfire on Republicans by energizing Democrats and voting rights groups and their allies. And I think this is going to be a hell of a big battle, and rightly so. But I have to say, you know, the prospect of yet another 
giant battle revolving around yet another giant crisis brings me to the topic I think that I want to close on with you, Debbie, which is this. Going back to your argument about why the president that America needs right now is Joe Biden and how that argument boiled down really to Joe Biden's ability to be a unifying figure in a terribly divisive time. I've been saying since the inaugural address when Biden rattled off the four big existential crises that he put on his agenda, COVID, recession, racial justice, and climate change, that those were all obviously good to have those on the list and we have to deal with them. But undergirding all of those is this other crisis, this this broad sort of civic crisis of partisanship and polarization and bitterness and disunity. And, you know, it feels to me like if we're going to have any chance of tackling these big substantive crises, these big substantive issues, we are going to need to deal with this political slash civic crisis first. So I guess I wonder whether, having watched these 70 days or whatever it is now, whether you still think that Joe Biden has a chance, and not just after watching these 70 days or so, you know, having the insurrection at the Capitol and everything else that we've seen, do you still think Biden has a chance of doing that and being that. Can Joe Biden unite the country? And I guess really the bigger question, which is, does the country even really want to be unified? I think that Joe Biden is very focused on uniting. And I think that there are people that want to see us unite. They are tired of the division, the constant drama. And I think Joe Biden is trying to lead in that. But I'm going to be very honest. I think Joe Biden is trying hard, but I think all of us, besides talking about the civic lesson that you're talking of and how this fear and hatred is dividing the country and too many people aren't, are just, we're normalizing it and we can't normalize it. But we also have to figure out how we pay attention to working men and women and I think that's a crisis in this country as well. And I think Democrats have to pay attention to this. We need to ensure that as we are going forward, that we all agree that global climate change is real. We need to protect ourselves, but we got to protect jobs. And we've got to make sure that we're keeping jobs in the United States of America and that we are paying people a decent wage and that people, you know, during COVID, the glue of who held us together, John, were people that we didn't think a year ago were worth paying $15 an hour. What kind of value do we place on when we've got billionaires who are you know, supporting platforms that spread hate and violence, and you've got grocery store workers, nurses, doctors, transit workers, caregivers, who many are working two jobs to even stay above the poverty line. And we all have to look at the value we place on each other. And that is a real challenge for the next couple of years, that job security, making sure that people have jobs is critical to our economic security. And unsurprisingly, it's often the case that I end up agreeing with Debbie Dingle. One of the most reliable things in my journalistic life is that I always find that I both enjoy and learn something from every conversation you and I ever have. Thank you for taking some time with us here. I'll always spend time with you. Thanks. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thanks again to Debbie Dingle. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel and Diana Roten handle the research. Stephanie Stender is our post producer and Christian Fidel Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 